Today's reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. We'll be reading from the New International Version. Please follow along in your own Bibles, or as the text is presented on the screens above. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I've chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I've filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I've appointed Aholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I've given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I've commanded you, the tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant law with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, the basin with its stand and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests, and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place, there to make them just as I commanded you. You are creative. And I'm feeling really powerful right now. <laughs> it is Father's Day. And uh, this is my, I, my dad passed away in 2005. And this sweater was his. No, my dad was not Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I love this sweater. But I love my dad. And so even if it was like really ugly, I would wear it and I would love it. So that's the way it works. Uh, I want to begin with, if you, can, if you can bear with me a little bit here, I want to begin with a little history, and it has to do with philosophy. I'm going to really bring this down to earth, so just be patient with me. The ancient Greeks, like we're talking 500 years before Christ, let's call that, that that period of Greek history, they zeroed in on three abstract concepts that they called the transcendentals, which they believed were the highest thing you could think about. And these three things were truth, meaning uh, logic and reason is how they meant it. Truth, goodness, meaning good or evil, ethics, morality. And the third one is, anybody know? Beauty, right. It's the aesthetics. And now what happened as Christianity, as Christ came and, and as the faith spread, those Christian thinkers saw an opportunity and they said truth goodness and beauty that's who God is and they used those three words to tell the world in a language they already understood that Greco-Roman world about God using those three uh, concepts or abstracts because God is truth he is good and he is beautiful glory is the word in the Bible that we find there now, a little more history, and then I'll, I'll, I'll get on to some stuff here that I know most of you aren't history-oriented. But uh, the, in the Reformation, which is where our church was sprouted out of that movement, uh, the, the Reformers or the Protestants were really big on truth, and in, especially with, with doctrine, and they were really big on ethics or uh, the commandments, but they weren't so big on the beauty part. And so that got set aside for most Protestants. In fact, art in Protestant churches 
is oftentimes not considered not something you'd want to do. We'll talk more about that next week. But even in some churches, there is no music. There are no instruments. Or there, so it's, it's been taken to the extreme. And um, it's odd because in the Bible, God seems to understand, if I can put it that way without uh, seeming blasphemous, seems to understand that the imagination which he has created in us is the most powerful part or potentially the most powerful part of who we are. And so that when he speaks in the Bible, he, he throws these words out and they create pictures in our minds. And so one of my favorite verses... No, it's not one of my favorites, actually, but uh, it's from Leviticus. It's so, it's so graphic. From Leviticus 18.28, God says that if you, meaning his people, defile this land that I'm giving to you, I will vomit you or it will vomit you out of its mouth. Is that a picture or what? You don't forget that one. And Isaiah 49, uh, God says that, uh, how could a mother forget the baby at her breast? How could that ever happen? And God says, yeah, but even if it did happen, I will never forget you. So you have that picture. You have the picture of Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. These are all pictures that the, the shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, God could have said something like, uh, I will take care of you. But instead, he paints a picture of a shepherd watching over his sheep. I, I'm just saying that God seems to understand that the imagination is a very, very powerful part of who we are. So we're in this series called You Are Creative. And the reason you are creative is because God is creative and you are made in his image, the Imago Dei. And I think J.D., uh, who's not, not here today, but J.D. has some things to say about that last week if you were here. And uh, the, the fact that we are, God creates, the Bible tells us, out of nothing. He created the world ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. We create out of things that he has, the raw materials of creation, we can make stuff. And I want you to think right now, because we're going to have a little classroom participation here in just a minute, about the things that you enjoy creating. I've got one, and uh, I'll share it with you, but um, we're going to see what happens here in just a minute. So for those extroverts there, get ready. Be your big moment. Yeah, and um, so God is the, the, uh, the initial, the, the creator. We're made in his image, and we get great joy out of creating things. And it could be the arts. Uh, this is, uh, I will say more about this later, but this is Pam Beer, her artwork, uh, who's over here today. She's here. And uh, there's others that do art. could be music. It could be what? What do you love to do? Photography. Photography. This is another photographer right here. Dance. Good. What else? Theater. Theater. Writing. Writing. Cooking. Can I come to your house? <laughs> what was the other one? Gardening. Sewing. Sewing. And I know there's some knitters here. We've, we've established that fact many times. My wife's a knitter, so I got that in there for her. I want you to, in my, uh, in my Bible here, and I put it in here because it's kind of sacred. Do you know what this is? Yeah, it's hard to see from the back, I know. But right here in my hand is a piece of art. This is called, get this, write this down in your sermon notes today. This is called a purple egg-sucking leech. 
and I'll share it with anybody who wants to hold it. Purple egg-sucking leech. In Alaska, this is the fly, and it just can catch. And, and you know, it's all catch and release, unless you eat them. It's all catch and release. Yeah. That's where we need the cooking, right there. Yeah. So we have, we have these... Uh, yeah, I think you get the idea that we're, we all have this kind of joy that we get from being part of creation and that God has joy when he creates. So let's go there. I want to give you the, the outline here. Uh, the joy of creation, the temple creation, we're going to look at that. That was what was read for us. And then a hidden beauty. Okay, uh, the joy, uh, this is my way maybe of saying some of the things that J.D. said last week. That God, in, in Genesis chapter 1, he comes across to us, it's poetic, there's a rhythm there, and at the end of each day, what are the words that God says over what he created? It is good. And then at the end of the sixth day, he says, it is very good. And then the whole seventh day was about celebrating the goodness of creation. I mean, that's, so I just want you to see that God takes great satisfaction. It's in his being. It, call it a pride of work. Is pride always a bad word? Because we kind of put it that way sometimes. But to feel pride in your creative work is the very thing that God felt and feels, because he's still creating. He's still doing stuff in people and wherever. He, he does his work. And there's a joy that comes to him when he does his work. So here's my story to illustrate. Uh, we had, when we lived in Olympia years ago, we had a 100-year-old farmhouse. And that's an old farmhouse in this part of the world. And there was lots of creating that we did with that. But after living there for a few years, and it seemed like every year, or maybe two, we would have to buy a new lawnmower. Because the lawn was really, really, it was lumpy, bumpy, like moguls, and it would just eat up lawnmowers. And it wasn't a very pretty lawn. So um, I got it into my head, and this is, we'll talk more about this next week, but I got it because it begins with a plan. God, creation began with a plan in God's mind, and it became real. This, this is my way of saying I'm created in God's image. I began with a plan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a new lawn here with the raw materials I have to work with. And so, you know, I did a little reading up on it, and I got a rototiller, and I rototilled it all up, and then I um, got the sand and the new dirt, mixed it all in there. I leveled it out, got the lumps out and the rocks out and all that stuff. Then you seed it, then you roll it, and then you water it, and then you wait. And every day I would go to the window. Every day I would go to the window. And then one day, there was this little green sprout. And I said, it is good. Because <laughs> you don't know, right? I mean, you don't know what's going to happen. It is good. And then more sprouts came out. And so I said, it is very good. And this joy of creating came over me regularly. I was hard to live with during this period of time. <laughs> Well, a little too much pride, you know. And then one day I went to the window and there was a molehill. And so I said, this is bad. And then there was another molehill. I said, this is really bad. Okay. But then, do you know what happened? This is the craziest thing. I became the world's biggest mole killer. 
And every time I caught one, you know what I would say? It is good. This is very good. You catch two on a day, that's very good. The lawn looked like heck, but, you know, it was, okay, whatever. No, it's true. Uh, that story is, is um, mostly true. Let's put it that way. But those, that, it really is. That, they went through that whole cycle. What is your creative joy? Um, yeah, we all have it. And what's the source of it? It's going to be a little different for everybody. But the, the thing that God has put in you, where you get that feeling that God had when he created the world. And you say, it's good. It's just, it's just, you know, those of you who are seniors in high school can look at your diploma now and say, it's good. Now, you didn't always say that every day when you woke up at 6.30 in the morning to get up or whatever it was, but you can say it is good now. John Coltrane, a uh, sax player, and I've, I've used this story before, but it's a beautiful story. In 1964, it's one of the, it, I don't know, maybe the uh, biggest selling jazz, jazz is not the, the greatest selling you know, genre of music, but I believe this is the, the biggest selling jazz album of all time called Love Supreme. And on the album cover, if you, ever get a, if you ever come across this at an old bookstore, buy it. Uh, this is beautiful stuff. This is what it says on the album co- cover. And you have to realize that in 1957, he was uh, uh, struggling with drug and alcohol addictions. During the year 1957, I experienced, by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. That is the heart of someone created in God's image. Right there. Beautiful stuff. And if you like jazz, buy that album. Okay, I want to get into the text for this morning, which is from Exodus chapter 31. And you heard it read, and you think, why is that being, what's the point here? Well, here's the deal. The temple, or the tabernacle, which became the temple. So tabernacle is kind of a nomadic tent, big tent thing that eventually becomes the temple when it's permanent in Israel, in Jerusalem. So I'm going to use those words back and forth, but that's where we are, is with the creation of this tabernacle. And it's beautiful. And God spends so much of the book of Exodus focusing in on this, the beauty, making sure that this place is beautiful. And so that's why we're going there this morning. And it's in this particular place, Moses has been up on the, the mountain, Mount Sinai, for days, uh, weeks, and he's been spending time with God, and God is giving him specific instructions on not just how to build this tabernacle, but how to do a lot of things that go in the tabernacle, the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, it's all in there. So we get to chapter 31 and uh, the tabernacle. Now, before we go into some of the details, I want you to hear something that that scholars uh, talk about. And that is that the tabernacle is like the Garden of Eden. It's a world unto itself. It's that perfect place where God dwells. He's in the center of it. We could say this is the place of ultimate truth, goodness, and beauty. And it's, a, it's, it's just a symbol of all that is God and God-like in this world. And that's why it's so important uh, in the story. And there's no chaos there. It's a beautiful place, a place of order and uh, beauty in great detail. So in chapter 31, he calls out this guy named um, 
it's hard, hard to pronounce his name, Bezalel, and uh, he is called to, be, to put in charge. And this is the only place where you find this phrase in the Old Testament. God says, I will fill him with my spirit. It's the only place. In other words, God is going to fill this man who's basically a construction uh, superintendent, if you're in that world, you're, you're like this guy, and he's going to fill him. He chose to fill him with his spirit. Not the priests, not the prophets, not the great leaders of Israel. This man gets that infusion of God's spirit. At least that's what it says in the text. And then he's, been, he's given skill and ability and knowledge, but he's also given lots of helpers, right? And these people are skilled in all these different areas with uh, metal and, and uh, fabric and wood and, and so forth and so on. And there's the, uh, God has this plan in his mind and he's going to use people to make it incarnate or flesh it out, we would say. Now the word... It's beauty. The focus on beauty here is, if you look for it, it's everywhere. And the word beauty, um, we, what did I say earlier? Aesthetic? Aesthetic means with the senses. You're going to be able to experience this beauty with the senses. So it, it entails, within sense, it entails smell, the, there's sight, there's sounds, uh, there's, it's, all, it's all there. It's very sensual. Aesthetic means sensual. Anesthetic means what? Without the senses. If you're an anesthesiologist, you basically want people to not feel anything, right? So that's where that, it's important to get, that's what the temple was all about. Very aesthetic. And it's all commanded from God. Now, here's a, this is another place we're going to go next week. There's a glitch, there's a molehill, we'll put it that way, in the story. And it happens in the very next chapter. So this is chapter 31. In chapter 32... They use art, they melt down jewelry, and Aaron is asked to do something artistic in the shape of what? A calf, the golden calf. Big problem. In other words, we can use art and our imaginations to do some really bad stuff. In this, in this case, there was, there was dancing around this golden calf. They were proclaiming it to be a god to them. Uh, there was the revelry, whatever that word means, but it suggests sexual orgy. This is, this is so, we are not in the area of truth, goodness, and beauty at this point. Uh, we're in the area of sin. And uh, that, that plays itself out. And Moses does this amazing, uh, I, we, we were here a couple of months ago when we were reading the Pentateuch together, the, the first five books together. And then in the, in the chapter that follows that, Moses intercedes for the people because God has had just about enough of these people and God, or Moses intercedes. And what is Moses asked to see of God? He has to see his face. He has to see his glory. And, and uh, God says to Moses, no one can see my glory. No one can see my beauty and live. It's too much for you. So God, what we're learning is that God is himself Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Too much for us to take in, in fact. Well, and then just to continue the story, it, 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 uh, they get things straightened out. Uh, there's forgiveness that happens, and, and the story moves on. They begin to build the tabernacle, and so they do it in such a good way. Actually, it's amazing how, how uh, many times they are complimented for their work by, by God and by Moses. And so the, 
the uh, final kind of verses on that are Moses inspected the work and he saw that they, what they had done was just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. There's, there's that joy factor coming in at the end of the work. And then at the, uh, further on down in verse 34 of chapter 40, then the, uh, uh, Moses, uh, so, and so Moses finished the work. Then the glory or the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's what God's way of saying, now it's good. I'm going to come into this place and the cloud that represented his presence came in. There's a sense of satisfaction and joy in this story. And... Uh, I want to talk now, finish up here with this idea of hidden beauty. And I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to go to a poem. And so poetry is not as popular as it once was, but um, I, don't, I use it sparingly. Pastors used to use poetry a lot, but I, I understand my audience. But I, I want you to, I'm going to do a little explaining here. Yeah, well, I, it's today, right? And uh, so... Uh, yeah, sorry to insult you. <laughs> I know there's going to be an English teacher that comes up afterwards and probably spank my hand or something, you know, <laughs> like they used to do. Okay. So um, the poet is uh, Sheshla Milosh. And if you, um, that name may or may not, you've never, I think I've used it before. This poem is called One More Day. And I want to give you a little bit, before we get into the poem, I want to give you a little bit about his story. He was, he was Polish. Actually, I think he was Lithuanian, but became Polish. Died in 2004 and uh, lived under communism uh, for most of his life. And that's going to be the subject of the poem one more day. He won the Nobel Prize. I can't remember what year it was. So he's a, he's a famous poet. But he writes about what poetry, or I'm sorry, what communism does to the human soul. And this is a stanza from the poem, One More Day. Non-being sprawls everywhere it turns into ash, whole expanses of being. So um, I'll, I'll, let, me, let me just explain this as we go. Non-being, meaning, meaning something that's not real, is it sprawls, it's everywhere, and it turns into ash, whole expanses of being, so it corrupts. Non-being corrupts being. And he, he's thinking about communism here when he says this, and you'll see that in just a minute. This non-being masquerades in shapes and colors that imitate existence, so it, it's a counterfeit to what is real. And no one would know it, no one would know that it's a counterfeit if they did not know that it was ugly. So it's, it's the ugliness of it that wakes us up to something that is true and good. Let me, let me tell you maybe what he was talking about here. I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but this is what I would guess he was talking about in the area of architecture. So architecture is a form of art. There, there you have that sprawl, that un, or non-being sprawl. What's the primary color of communist architecture? It's gray. It really is. It's drab. And, you know, not to say that everything in, in this Western world is always beautiful. That, that would be taking it too far. This is Warsaw. This, is, this would be his world back in the 50s. The communists creating these gray monuments to communism. And then this is Romania, where, where I just was, and a few of us just were. Now, is that inspiring? 
Does that, does that maybe wake you up to, don't you say to yourself, there's got to be something else? What would beauty look like? And so I got a picture here. This is Romania, Carpathian Mountains. And what he's saying is that it's the ugliness that we see around us, that is sprawled around us. That if, if, The reason, if we can just see what's ugly, it's going to wake us up to something that's true and good. So the rest of the poem goes like this. And when people cease to believe there is good and evil, which is what communism, you could say, perpetuates, only beauty will call to them and save them so that they still know how to say this is true and this is false. It is beauty, folks, that wakes you up to what is good and wakes you up to what is true. Yep, yep that's, that's an amen right there. That's, can you all say it? <laughs> that is, and if, and this is just, so God is this creator who uses beauty to wake us up to what is good and what is true. I hope that you love that poem. I mean, I hope it's not just me sharing something that I love. Well, uh, every artist... Every artist has the right or the prerogative to ask something of the viewer. So to say to the person who's looking at their art, whatever it is, it could be, it could be gardening or it could be whatever, but we're, we're going to use Pam's uh, art here. And ask, so you would, you would say, well, what does that mean? And because unless it's kitschy, it's not obvious. And who likes kitschy art? Well, don't raise your hand if you do, because you get booed for that. <laughs> Actually, there is, there is some kind of cool kitschy art. But um, anyway, uh, the artist has the right to ask you into do the work of trying to understand the meaning of whatever it is. And so, um, Pam, I've forgotten the name of it. Blue mist. Okay, blue mist. This is called blue mist, and I think we we can understand why it might be called blue mist and not yellow mist. But uh, we we need some maybe maybe some help. And so I Pam gave me a little bit of insight here, in that from afar what you see is in fact uh, a blue mist. If if you're sitting in the back row, but if you're sitting in the front row, uh, what do you notice here? Mark anything? Anything else that you see? Sorry. Different textures, and this is uh, an oil wax uh, kind of application. But there's lots. Of, I don't know if you can see these scratches here, and uh, imperfections, and um, atmosphere. say what? The Earth's atmosphere. Well, hey, there you go. There's somebody entering in from uh, a different place, and uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Uh, but but you know it is. It, we're meant to enter in, and, and we do. We will see different things. But uh, what it suggests, and as you get closer, it, I, I, Pam told me this, so I'm just telling you what she said, is that it's like people. When you see them from far away, they, they, you'll see the main themes or colors of their life. But as you get closer, you'll see some of the imperfections and scratches that are part of life also. It's to be human. I mean, that just gives you something to go further with and afterwards you may want to come up and look at it and maybe something else will come to you as you do so uh, now here's the deal God remember he's the artist and I'm sure that there's joy in that and God takes great joy in his artwork but he also does this thing where he invites you to look at something whether it's the temple or something else we're going to talk about here in just a sec he invites you to look at it and he's not going to explain it all to you he's going to give you hints it's, it's a hidden beauty 
And you have to enter in. You can't be lazy. You have to enter in using your senses and your imagination to figure out the meaning there. So uh, by far, I would say, and I, I don't have numbers on this, but the, the, in the Christian tradition, in the Western tradition at least, uh, when it comes to art, the, the crucifixion or the cross is like so many times been painted by so many different artists throughout history. I mean, it just, it's amazing. And uh, the, the funny thing is, we're, we're so used to seeing that symbol that we forget how ugly, if you had been there on that day, on that Friday, around noon or, or in midday, you, you forget how absolutely ugly you, if you were there, you would say, this is about the ugliest thing I've ever seen. This man and his two guys next to him dying on the cross. Blood, bruises, birds of prey, darkness, people shouting. It's ugly. I mean, you, it's hard to imagine anything uglier. So this is why we talk about a hidden beauty. Where's the beauty here? And you have to, you're invited to enter in because, I mean, why is Good Friday called good? Is, is really the question. You have to think about it. But isn't it, doesn't it do something to you to realize that God, the Creator, allowed Himself to be put to death by His creation? I mean, just hearing that, it, it, it awakens something in us beyond the ugliness to something that is perhaps beautiful in that in the angel, it says in the Bible, it says, Peter says, the angels long to look into these things. They can't understand it. They, they scratch their heads. Why would God do such a thing? Why would he submit himself to being killed? And why would the best man ever be killed in the worst and the ugliest way? And the conclusion that the artists have come to throughout is that it's where God's intense beauty is revealed. So Paul picks up on this. The glory of God is revealed in the cross of Christ. That's the beauty. And if God can take something so ugly as a Roman torture device that kills people and turn it into something so beautiful, think what he can do with people like you and me with all our scratches and all our stuff and turn us into something beautiful. And that's why we have hope. And that's why God takes such great joy as he does his work in us. Amen. Let us pray. Creator God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to know that you are a God of joy brings joy to our hearts. To know that you take great joy in doing your good creative work in people, in us, and through us as we do our creative work in the world. And that too gives you joy as it gives us joy. We give you thanks. May we use the work of our hands and the minds that have established plans to do that work. May we use all of this to bring glory, to make you beautiful, to lift you up. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.